0: Hey, everyone, Eric Torenberg here. We just launched a new show, The Leader Series Podcast, with General Assembly co-founder and thesis-driven editor, Brad Hargreaves. Thesis-Driven is the top newsletter publication for real estate changemakers, and the first season of the podcast builds on top of that, with 12 interviews with the leading voices at the intersection of real estate, cities, innovation, and technology. We'll cover how technology is going to shape real estate investing over the coming years, what new sectors and consumer preferences changes mean for real estate development, and how entrepreneurs might be able to play to these trends. The first episode is out now. Search thesis driven on any podcast app today, or visit the link in the description. Welcome to The Riff, where writer and investor Burn Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not-so-obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. How are you? Doing great. I saw that you, uh, you wrote uh, about uh, OpenAI. Uh, most recently, some new details uh, surfaced. What was, uh, what, what was most intriguing to you?
2: Well, my attitude towards this situation for a while has been that you should just assume that there's more to the story and it takes a long time to come out because um management their their stated reason for um for kicking Altman out in the first place was that he hasn't been entirely consistent, and then there was that weird blurb from a couple days ago about how the board could not find any specific examples of this because he was just so good at uh I'm misleading them, but then um, we did have the one case study of him apparently, like per per the board members' recollection, telling some board members that other board members wanted to get rid of another board member, and then that turned out not to be true. Um, which I don't know. I like if you're like, Fultman's first startup was Looped, and they did these deals with they were a mobile app, and they were. mobile app at a time when you had to actually do deals with carriers it wasn't just get your app approved in the app store it was actually like get get verizon to want to do this and um that's just a very different proposition and it is the kind of thing it's the kind of task that really rewards um getting each side to feel like they are they're the only stumbling block in making this happen and they will be left behind if it doesn't happen and i think that habit that habit of being being optimistic about achieving your aims is um, generally a good one, and can can always be taken too far. Like, um, you know, there's the, the, in one sense it's just like this. You know, the, this is how how like a party happens is that you insinuate to person A that person B is definitely going to be there, and then person B that person C is going to be there, and then person C that person A is going to be there. And as long as as long as everyone feels like there will be a good guest list, they all want to go. And if you tell someone like I'm throwing a party and nobody's coming will you please come to my party then it's not going to happen um so yeah at one level this is just how all social events happen at another level though it is um or at least how many social events happen at another level it's also how how Ponzi keeps happened is you know i off mean, like at some point really believed that he could get very good returns and raise money accordingly and couldn't get such good returns and figured if he raises a little more money, maybe he will get, uh, maybe he'll figure something out and then it all just uh, collapses. So there's a, there is this continuum between making something happen and just overcoming natural inertia and then a Ponzi scheme. And um, there are a lot of good things in that continuum and then some very bad things in that continuum. So, um, yeah, like the most the most recent revelation was about these these complicated boardroom politics, and it it's just it's hard to interpret because a you only you only have one half of the story, and or probably significantly less than one half of the story because the board um, the board also wants to minimize its own liable, liability and um, wants to retroactively make the their actions look as good as they can look, so they they do have an incentive to to frame the story in a way that's favorable to them, and then. Sam Altman and um, his his camp at OpenAI—they have the incentive to frame it in a way that, that looks good for them. So, like, I, I still think the confidence intervals on what actually happened, who is to blame, it, it should be really wide. Um, I think you can. There's like, there's definitely a version of this story that is, you know, one one set of actors was, was bad actors and they they did something that sabotaged that sabotaged the company and either made benevolent AI less likely or made evil AI more likely. And there's another version that's just, um, there wasn't really a fit. Like you had this organization that wants to do one thing, and you have this governance body that has different set of priorities, and they it, things ultimately came to a head. And when, um, when people share certain aspects of the mission, and one of them just has more control over the resources required to achieve that mission, that person is de facto in charge, even if the org chart says otherwise. So it also just it comes back to this legal realist way of looking at uh looking at org charts and looking at at social systems in general is that like whoever whoever actually has negotiating leverage is in charge regardless of titles, but it's a lot healthier for everyone's title to correspond to what what they're actually empowered to do so like maybe maybe this story would have a happier ending if instead of a board of directors there was a board of observers and they had the same level of transparency but they also knew that they wouldn't be legally liable if they said something that was exaggerated but negative and so but also that they don't have as much of a social liability because they can't actually sabotage like they can't just shut down the company in service of the mission um or shut down shut down the charity in service of the mission that it's supposed to accomplish so um Maybe in that scenario, they they complain earlier about this management style and about you know compartmentalization and and um, whatever whatever social manipulation happened or that they believe happened, and um, you know they can't they can't do anything about it. But it does get surfaced, and maybe that actually affects the again from like a, a realist standpoint, like that actually affects um, Sam Walton's freedom of action. Like if if he is actually in the habit of telling people that things are further along than they are and of hiding certain things from certain people and saying certain things that are aspirationally true but not entirely true just yet, um, that gets harder if that's your reputation. Like It only works if people actually think that you're being completely level with them. So they they might have, paradoxically, have had more practical power if they had less formal power. And I think that's a good lesson for, for organizations generally. I think it's good for, for companies to think about that, you know, that um, if there's if there's an employee who has a love pull, um, with other employees and has particular views, like even if they are not actually, if they're nominally not able to enforce those views, maybe, maybe they practically are, and that it's actually better to just accommodate that.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, one th- sort of straw man that was taken from the the saga was, you know, the, the simple narrative for a bunch of people is something along the lines of the board either. Um, you know, was too EA pilled and thought that Sam was, 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 was acting in, in sort of danger to, to uh, their, their mission um, or that uh, either someone was jealous or that there were um or, or that they had lost trust in some way, but were unable to say exactly how, um, but that um, they eventually reneged and everyone disagreed with them or, or all the employees disagreed. And that by doing so, the board members had basically jeopardized the company or the whole, you know, initiative. Uh, but another story goes like, you know, did they jeopardize the company or did Sam jeopardize the company? Because there's another world where Sam just took it. He just said, "Okay, I'm off to do my next thing." And um, you know, I, I applaud uh, the, the the new CEO. You know, the the you know the promotion and um, all the employees stay and the the tender offer goes through and everyone's happy and we got a new CEO um and greg you should stay on the board you know this kind of thing but uh so you know i i I think i think both are reasonable critiques
2: yeah i mean there is just that that general conflict theory or the uncertainty theory of conflict that you don't actually start a fight like a fight doesn't start if it's obvious who's going to win you don't need to have a fight you just um at some point you know at some point sam just informs the board hey um I find you people annoying and you can't stop me. So let's just formalize this and I am replacing all of you with Twitter announce who have EAC in their bio, have a nice day. So like that's, that's one version. And you know, there's another version where the board says, Sam, this is not working. We are replacing you with someone else and that's it, but. For there to be an actual conflict, both sides have to think that they have a reasonable shot at winning, and they both have to believe that the other side is overestimating its own odds. Or, or you can just have um, people can just get uh, get really wrapped up in in their egos and feel like this is this is their one chance to save humanity. And both sides do get to say that in in that scenario. Like Sam gets to say, "I'm creating this really important technology that is absolutely necessary for human flourishing, and these people are trying to stop me, and I have to stop them for humanity." And then. They could say he's actually creating the the apocalypse button, and we can't let him build it and then press it because he will. So, um, yeah, they. But even like even then, they do have to have some view. Like both sides have to have some view that they can actually accomplish something, because otherwise, otherwise, what is the point of actually fighting? You're it's just uh, just a very loud way to complain um, about something that you actually don't don't really play a part in. So, I think they both they both um, I, I guess. Before the firing, they both would have overestimated their their ability to to get away with things. And then post firing, it looks like board underestimated Sam Altman, um, both his political skill and employee loyalty to him. And um, I don't know, Sam uh, Sam had clearly underestimated the board's willingness to fire him before. Like presumably, there were things that he did that he knew the board didn't like that he could have done less of. He, but he assumed he was doing it, you know, right up to the point where it's actually a problem, and it was actually a little bit past the point where it was a problem um so yeah we've we've collapsed. They've collapsed more uncertainty than the rest of us have. The rest of us um just know that the situation will will remain confusing for some time.
1: I do wonder what's in uh, adam d'angelo's head. um adam's a a good guy i've gotten gotten to know a bit, but not not well enough to to be on the inside of of what's uh, of, of what's happening. and it's yeah, it's it's one can only wonder i mean, uh, to, for him to. Have you know participated in, in some level in, in what happened, but then also to remain on the board? Um, it seems like he's a little bit the X factor here.
2: Yeah, and um, I think I think another dynamic is that to the extent that you have idiosyncratic views on on AI relative to the within AI mainstream, you might also be hesitant to express those views. Like you might try to be in a position where. You can either see if things are going wrong or see if things are going right but not, might not go right in the right way um but you wouldn't necessarily tell everyone what your full game plan is because the the unfriendly ai thesis um the, when people talk about ai as an existential risk they generally talk about this fully autonomous ai that is just doing things and no no human can stop it but there's this intermediate stage somewhere in the takeoff where humans can stop it. And of course, if you're talking about existential risk as anything other than just a reason you're very depressed, like you're talking about it as something that can be solved. So at some point, we we reach a stage where bad things can happen, but there are still humans in the loop who can stop them. And if you are worried about those things, you want to be one of the humans in the loop. So um, you, you might actually see people... Understating their pessimism about the impact of AI, but also you could see other people understating their optimism because if you're too optimistic, it sounds like you're indifferent to indifferent to existential risk. And um, there are there are people who at least claim to be there are people who want to build the machine god and have us you know shed our flesh prisons or be superseded by our our godlike creations. Um, those people are a distinct minority, um, and uh, I think that's that's just a weird anti-human view. But um, they would also, to the extent that they actually buy into that, would really want to understate that if they were, say, working at OpenAI or working at any of the other labs, it would just uh, it would weird out their colleagues too much. Um, you know, if you if you if you are building this thing that is unimaginably powerful, and you actually think the best use case is to do horrific acts of destruction, it would be like if you were working on the Manhattan Project and you were the one saying, "I really want to build the atom bomb because I think humans can finally destroy ourselves with this." Um, it would be uh, it would lead to some awkward water cooler conversations. So yeah, I think there's like a narrowing. There's a narrowing of the Overton window within the within AI research, and they have they have a wide Overton window. Just you have to be a you have to be a fairly high variance you know high openness to new ideas kind of person to have bet your career on ai when it didn't look like it was um going sure to be as significant as it turns out to be
1: yeah no uh that's uh that's well articulated um i want to segue to something else you wrote uh this past week about um the incentives around releasing models you know speaking of of uh, of, of ai um we saw you know google come out with with, uh, with, with gemini and, and and other big companies of course um have come out with their with, with their own what do you talk about um some of the the, the offs here or, or what you found uh interesting
2: yeah so i think there's a really so i always like thinking about lags and when when a decision happens or when when something gets announced it is sometimes fun to think back to how long did someone have to plan for this and what led to it getting done now or what led to getting released right now. And with AI products, the larger the company that's producing the product, the more likely it is that they have to worry about headline risk and regulatory risk and all sorts of other risks that just aren't relevant to a smaller company. So you know, I somehow invented a really amazing AI model, and I just hadn't quite fine tuned it to the point that it stopped using slurs. Um, there's less, like there's obviously risk in releasing that, but there's, there's less risk than if Google releases Gemini and it starts saying horrible things. So they will tend to have, um, like the, the base model, you know, done. And then they have to spend a long time just stress testing it, red teaming it, all that stuff. And then they have to figure out at what point, like they know they can't get the risk of bad outcomes to zero, but at what point are the risks low enough that the, the business risk of not launching it means that you do have to just ship it knowing that there might still be mistakes it might still hallucinate in important ways it might say unpleasant things to some users but you'll just have to roll with it and one of the things that is a forcing portion there is just who else is releasing models of similar capability so um there was uh, a lot of discussion right when gemini came out about how it does really well on a bunch of benchmarks and outperforms gpt 4 and then you look at the details of those benchmarks and they picked really specific tasks on which it very slightly outperforms gpt4 and the the implication is that on a like for like basis maybe it's not quite as good but there's there's some sense in which it is on many different dimensions significantly better um so you it so like what happens there is that there is like this long lag of actually building the model and then there's this other lag of um, doing the work necessary to get the model ready for release, and we're shortening that latter lag. Like it's 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 pretty tough to accelerate a research process, especially a, a fairly open-ended one, but um, you can you can accelerate the release process. And so we've had over the last year a bunch of really exciting AI announcements. But the way to think about them, I think, is that in isolation there would have been fewer announcements, they would have been more widely spaced, not because the the pace of fundamental research has necessarily changed that much, but because the the urgency to actually get something to market has changed so much. And actually, uh, the Gemini announcement is is a case in point there too, where they announced three models and you can use one in bar, but it's not actually the one that is outperforming GPT-4 and all these different benchmarks. That one comes later and it has a different name. Um, you know, it's it's Ultra instead of just Gemini, because people have been talking about Gemini coming for a long time. So you could say like Google was able to say, hey, we released Gemini, the thing that you've been talking about for so long, but what people were also trying to talk about was Gemini, the Google model that's better than GPT-4, and that one is is not here quite yet. So we have um, an announcement like a release that was earlier than anticipated and then the announcement implies that the release was also like the announcement implies that the the most powerful model was released but actually that model comes later and maybe that model is not that much better than GPT 4 or perhaps even underperforms it on on more benchmarks once you make those benchmarks more standardized so um yeah like the the pace it's going to be very easy to, to overstate that pace. And then we will get to the point where all of the stuff that was in the works and being worked on um and you know being being tested and things has all been released and then we're we're back to whatever the just steady state of AI advances is. So yeah. Um 2024 will um of course be a year when lots of new things come out, but it may actually be a year where there's a comparative deceleration in um at least how how uh Uh, how surprising the announcements are
0: hey everybody eric here with a word from our sponsors real quick what's the easiest choice you can make taking the window instead of the middle seat outsourcing business tasks that you absolutely hate what about selling with shopify Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Whether you're selling security systems or marketing memory modules, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. I've used it in the past at the companies I've founded. And when we launch merch here at Turpentine, Shopify will be our go-to. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And Shopify helps you sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. With Shopify Magic, whip up captivating content that converts from blog posts to product descriptions. Generate instant FAQ answers. Pick the perfect email send time. Plus, Shopify Magic is free for every Shopify seller. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Moment of Zen. Go to Shopify.com slash Moment of Zen now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Moment of Zen.
1: Coinciding with this is sort of Bitcoin's surge and you know people are getting excited about crypto again, and maybe there'll be a crypto bull market. Um, you know, an- another one, I'm, I'm curious if, if you think that's possible, but I or you think it's likely, but I, what I wonder if even if there is, I wonder if people will get back into crypto in the same way they did on the last bull run, or if it's kind of like, you know, fooled me once, fooled me twice, or, or, or if it, in the sense that they, they won't come back, but less so because the fool me once, fool me twice, and more so actually just because AI is just so exciting, and so practical. And so, you know, in front of users already, and it's tough for the talented most talented engineers in en mass to switch from something like like AI to, to crypto which seems more you know financially oriented or is somewhat of a, a, a mirage in terms of the consumer applications to least to the same degree um that's the flip side is um you know the argument that hey AI is sustaining so if you want to go work at OpenAI or or I guess that's the only startup but you know Meta or or, or something the only startup that can really compete with some of these big big companies um you know it's gonna be harder to start new things off the ground that become you know 100 billion dollar plus companies whereas in crypto maybe it's more disruptive and 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 maybe you're creating net new things that could be more massive and there's more more white space any reactions to any of that
2: yeah Uh, like this bull market has been less less fun and interesting to me than the last one but that's like that's what a bull market is made of is people thinking this is not uh not so amazing just yet because those are people who haven't bought yet and um once everyone who hasn't bought yet has bought then you're at the peak and it's it's down from there so um yeah i think my 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 lack of um enthusiasm is uh is actually itself bullish um i i think you're right that the the barriers to entry have gone up massively in ai and in a lot of, like in a lot of um, booms, you'll have this cycle where the barriers to entry for the core product have gone way up, but the barrier to entry for the peripheral product that uses this core product has actually gone down because there are now so many competing models and the prices have come down and all that good stuff. But um, that has actually become a riskier proposition. So if you're building something that is a wrapper on somebody else's a- API, and they can see the API calls that you're making, and they can also check Crunchbase, like, they can just look at is actually raising a lot of money and getting a lot of usage and if if both of those things are happening, like if the usage is going up, then that's a sign that this is actually an application that customers like. And if the valuation is high, that's also a sign this is an application that investors like. So it becomes a really good sign that um, you should just launch it yourself and not uh, you know not not let someone else run away with all that market cap. And that that does seem to have happened um, in multiple cycles with um, you know chat GPT, killing off other other attempts to build like a more interactive version of um of an LLM and then um the GPT is theoretically killing off a bunch of uh, a bunch of different special purpose um LLM um, applications so yeah that, that i it, it is really tough like if you decide ai is really cool it is really tough to figure out what you should be doing differently this year other than buying nvidia call options like um it sort of you sort of have to figure out what like, could I spend a couple of years actually getting up to the state of the art while everyone else who was already at the state of the art is continuing to advance? Or should I just um, assume this is a nice tool that will make a lot of things that I do somewhat easier, but that I will, I just don't have a real shot at improving? Um, and then the the counter to that is, well, what if you'd said that, you know, in 2016, when Google started talking about how they're really an AI company and have been all along and um, when when Meta started or then Facebook started talking about AI more and other people did. There was, there was an AI hype cycle for investors in 2016 and 17. People were really, really into it and um, companies were really, really pushing that narrative. So... Um, If you had decided that it's, you know, it might be too late, but maybe we should get really into AI in 2016, well, by 2023 terms, you are, you would have been a pretty early adopter still. And same thing happens with crypto, you know, when crypto first hit a thousand, it really, or when Bitcoin first hit a thousand, it really felt like, well, that was fun. But, you know, the, uh, the exciting part is over. Surely, surely returns won't be that great from here on out. Um, Yeah, returns, returns turned out to be pretty great <laughs> from now on out. Um with, with some bumps along the way. So yeah, turning turning back to crypto. Um, I think I to think take so you can you can look at the current move as um a rate anticipation move. And some of it it's just a response to lower, lower rates for 10-year, uh 10-year treasuries that they they reduce the opportunity cost to owning an asset that doesn't have yield. Um crypto is certainly a lot more institutional now. Like there are a lot of the a lot of the flakier operators did blow up, um, go to prison, that kind of thing that that's always healthy for the ecosystem. So in some ways, crypto crypto is definitely safer. And we'll see. I um uh, on Twitter I still see I now see lots and lots of ads for NFT collections, but it just doesn't, you know, the fact that it's um it's paid marketing and not organic marketing um i just haven't seen anyone bragging about their nfts yet so that that part of last cycle may not be replicated in the same way i guess one one thing that does make crypto more interesting this cycle is just there's more geopolitical instability and when when people first started talking about bitcoin it's this post-crisis environment and you could feel like there's all this money printing maybe this will cause hyperinflation um It turned out not to there was there was enough credit destruction to more than offset that so that wasn't the true risk but um there was also this worry that the system is just falling apart and um, you want your assets to be as mobile as possible and you want yourself to be as mobile as possible and that actually feels like a more meaningful concern like it feels like there are more parts of the world where you do actually have to worry about things like military conflict and expropriation of your assets and stuff like that um obviously inflation inflation is higher and so the idea of um assets with algorithmically designed defined money supply gets more enticing in that environment so um but i think like the it is sort of like a a classic more classic crypto bubble it's um it's the the geopolitical the era of geopolitical crisis that um, bitcoiners were kind of betting on in the early 2010s that didn't actually materialize it has finally materialized so maybe there is a use case um You still, in that scenario, have this problem that uh, to be to be long crypto with that as your bull case, you're basically saying, "I think a lot more oligarchs will be fleeing to Dubai, and they won't. You know, they'll have so much gold they can't fit it all on their private plane, so they'll have to put it onto uh, they'll have to turn it into Bitcoin and uh, just take take a you know encrypted file with them when they leave. So you are still betting on basically. Um, some fraction of bad people being able to get away with badness, but you are also betting that um, government control of the entire financial system is not necessarily a good thing, and that the worse governments get, or you know, the more the more drastic their action, the, the action they have to take, the more you want to be protected from that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, on the note of uh, of sort of crypto ripping ripping at the moment, what do you think in terms of your? Uh, Predictions as to whether we'll have a a smooth landing or soft landing, or um, you know, experience sort of a recession or minor recession, or what? What are your sort of predictions for for for, for the economy? How we'll handle this time? Assuming so you mean the broader economy and not like yes. the, the yeah. crypto economy and the know, adjacent
2: thought... Lambo dealers and stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, it still seems like the way to bet. Like, um, you know, the economy had a big shock to the banking sector recently, and the the broader economy mostly shrugged that off. Um, the macro numbers still look really good. It's it's weird to me. It seemed like things should get a lot worse, but um we've we've survived pretty high rates. The housing market doesn't really clear and so that's that kind of makes it hard to tell what's really going on. You sort of have this two-tier housing market where new houses get sold by developers, they're subsidizing the mortgage and they make it look cheaper so we sort of Move some of the um, the rates impact onto the the home builders who, since they've already started building these homes, um, they still have to move inventory. So it's not going to change their decisions on the margin. And then you have a lot of homeowners where they're they're stuck because their mortgage is too good and they can't move and they can't get divorced and you know all of that uh, all of that stuff because where else will you be able to borrow at three percent? Um, so yeah, we're in a we're in a weird economy, um, but I guess we the economy is always in some sense weird. And it just seems like the the path of least resistance is this very gradual, um, big, gradual, soft landing. But it's just notoriously hard to predict what the economic cycle will look like because you always have feedback loops that are not obvious, usually not obvious, except in retrospect. And when there's a lot of weird stuff going on, you just don't know. You don't know what will break and you don't know what will be contained and you don't know where where the ultimate impact would be like when you know in 2006 and 2007 actually people were people were pretty aware that housing had peaked and that defaults were ticking up rapidly for subprime mortgages but the the popular thesis then there were subprime companies that had been going new century i think went into bankruptcy in early 2007 and you know the bear stearns funds collapsed in i think march of 2007 Um, But the market didn't peak until November of 2007. So people were well aware that housing had peaked, that there had been a housing bubble, like Google Trends searches for housing bubble were already up and then had rolled over and started dropping. Um, They were aware of all of that. But the view was, subprime is just not that big a category of the mortgage business. And even if there are defaults, like the banks are making money elsewhere, And they probably won't run into too much trouble. They'll just have this, this gradual period where they're taking write-downs on some of the loans they made and they feel dumb, but they had this nice period of extremely high profits beforehand. So they'll be okay in the end. And then it turned out that the real issue was the financial plumbing that people were borrowing doing very short-term borrowings against highly rated, um, highly rated credit products that were backed in part or in whole by subprime mortgages and even if you felt like the average subprime, like if you feel like the average of those, average asset in that class was not going to be impaired, if someone has levered 30 to one and you think that there are low but now non-zero odds that um, they will lose 5% of the value of some of their assets, you don't want to fund any of those assets. So you don't know which ones are going bad. And if you're in the business of underwriting overnight loans against very low-risk products, you don't want to suddenly become an expert on the very deep nuances of credit for these assets and how correlated the assets within these structured products are, et cetera. You, you just, you don't have time to do that. Whereas you do have time to answer the phone from your usual borrower and say, actually, we're not rolling over that one, you should find someone else. And um, enough people did that, that the market completely seized up. You couldn't trade anything. Um, people, people really freaked out. And that's, that was actually the 2008 crash was, um, people not rolling over extremely short-term loans. It was tangentially related to subprime, but was actually this totally different risk factor that was pretty, pretty invisible to policymakers. Yeah. You know, w- well said,
1: I, I want to segue to another deep dive you did this week, which was on, uh, on McDonald's. Um, and so, and their rewards, pro- uh, program and how they're actually a software business, um, what? Why don't you? But in kind of a, un, a non-obvious way. So what, why don't you talk about that?
2: Yeah. So I, I really like looking into um, well-run companies that are not tech companies, but are increasingly teching up, because a lot of times they've they know things about consumers, consumer behavior, and about worker behavior that the rest of us can't can't fathom, and um, so they they have a lot of this. Um, a lot of this tacit knowledge that they can then encapsulate in in their apps and rewards and so with with someone like mcdonald's like their their whole thing is that they are this extremely efficient burger manufacturing company like you you go in you order a burger it is always produced according to spec it's always exactly as fast as you thought it would be the restaurant is always you know acceptably clean and acceptably safe and so on so you're getting this very very standardized experience. And then McDonald's is also a manufacturing company in the sense of they're manufacturing new locations. Um they're they're finding places where they can plop down another franchise and um it'll get decent decent foot traffic and they'll be able to slightly slightly expand their coverage area and sell sell slightly more um more Big Macs and happy meals. So I think that 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 idea of like the the core business is actually more of a business of creating and enforcing standards, and then the actual implementation is done by the franchisees, who are, um, you know, they're they're in a different business. They actually have to do things like figure out who's showing up for which shift and hiring hiring someone new when their cashier quit or whatever. But um, McDonald's corporate does not have to think about that stuff. They have to think about the more about the the higher level abstractions. So um, this. And then this this leads to the loyalty program discussion. So, um McDonald's had an Investor Day last week, and when I was reading through the transcript, they talked about their loyalty program and how it's actually one of the largest on earth. Um, I think they said that um if you look at people who use the loyalty program at least once in the last year, it has two hundred and fifty million members, I believe. So like it it is on a yearly active user basis, one of the largest, largest consumer facing products out there. And then, because they were talking so much about the loyalty program, I looked into it and it's actually an insanely generous program. So it's something like you get a hundred points for every dollar you spend, and you can redeem 15 points for a McChicken, I think. And that typically retails for 450 to 650. So um, if you think of it as a on a return on ad spend basis, if you do the McChicken, which is the one that I checked, you get 30% or so of your money back. And that's crazy. Like an airline that's going to give you a free flight for every three flights you take, or like a hotel where your know, fourth night's free, um, it would be a, a, a very generous program. It would um, it would certainly get people's attention. But with McDonald's, part of the order pattern is people buy a meal for their family, and so giving them something free is basically a way to get that incremental foot traffic, and the marginal cost of chicken is going to be pretty low. So they, um, if that if that free food is actually sold, is like it's given away as part of this bundle that actually involves ordering, say, thirty or forty dollars worth of food. Then getting the incremental sale is worth more than the cost of that additional um, chicken sandwich. And if they have a loyalty program, they have an app. The app has push notifications, so they can do stuff like get people to order ahead. They can have people do different kinds of pickup, so they can control their their uh, the throughput of their factory and and line it up a lot better. They can also do push notifications, so if they know that you have wrapped up enough rewards, they don't have to tell you right away. They can wait until there is a very slight demand shortfall at one of their locations where they've they've modeled it out and the next 30 minutes are going to be unusually slow. They have room for one more customer than, you know, one one incremental customer. So they blast out some push notifications and let's say they know the conversion rate's 5%, so they send them to 20 people. So they get there statistically one more person at the store and they're getting a little more utilization. And if you think of their average cost you're thinking of things like the cost of rent and utilities and um personnel but their marginal cost is um is really just the cost of the ingredients and you know whatever incremental utilities usage is required to to cook them and then you know the interchange fees and stuff like that so the marginal cost of one more meal is really really low as long as they're operating to low capacity and by having a very generous rewards program and having a bunch of people have installed the app they can actually manage that demand around their capacity much more precisely. The other really interesting thing about Dolls is that they have um, a long list of operational standards. And they said there's a five point, I think it's a five point revenue difference in stores that are at the bottom versus at the top of compliance with those standards. And um, I think the average location, average revenue per location is like 4 million. So there's like a $200,000 a year revenue difference. And a lot of that, again, is going to be incremental profit um, for the restaurants that are actually cleaning the bathroom on schedule and where the, the cashier is greeting you in the exact prescribed way. And all of those little details are taken care of, which is, I think, another case of this software like Leverage, where you slightly improve things on a couple different axes and a huge amount of revenue drops to the bottom line. The other other piece of the McDonald's model I thought was interesting was like many other companies that own big brands, they are slowly dematerializing and outsourcing all the messy operational stuff to franchisees or to other third-party companies. But with McDonald's, one big part of their operating leverage is that they buy $60 billion a year worth of ingredients and packaging. And every time they expand that number, they have slightly more negotiating leverage with their suppliers. So for them, a franchise a new franchise location, it improves their pricing power. And since that's pricing power, the McDonald's corporate has a, pretty much all of that benefit actually drops to the McDonald's parent company, not to the franchisees. So they are creating this system where other people are doing a lot of the work and a lot of the capital intensive work for them. And then the the corporate parent is reaping the rewards. And you've got positive feedback loops with all of these. So the bigger they are as an ingredients buyer, the more pricing, the more... Um, Margin they can get on their products, and that increases the return on things like having a really nice rewards program, and having a denser network of uh, locations, and running more national ad campaigns, and all the other stuff that they do. So, yeah, it just it turns out to be uh, a really interesting, really well-run business, and I think it's just a case study in um, the general quality of big companies has gone up a lot over time. The management is a lot more competent, and they're a lot more aware of all the levers they can pull. So that is, it's not the only ingredient in the rise in corporate profits as a share of GDP, but it's definitely a meaningful ingredient that um, when McDonald's is trying to extract an um, incremental 10 cents in gross profit per visit from the, the median McDonald's customer, like McDonald's has a lot of really, really big advantages in that area and their customers have very few. So fun. We've put a lot of uh, a lot of human capital and a lot of time into optimizing these systems as a society. Um, probably, probably 50, 80 years ago, whoever's running McDonald's would have been doing something very different with their time instead. Um, they'd probably be more likely to be in, in politics or something, and um, or you know, working for the government. And um, government would have been more more competent then. But maybe, maybe the the cheap and extremely reliable burgers are actually a. a a good price to pay for diminished state capacity. While we're on the topic um, or
1: in a related topic, you also wrote about the minimum wage. And there's been sort of uh, the general thinking over the years has been sort of the sort of libertarian or right wing argument against minimum wage, which is it leads to un- unemployment. Uh, but Noah Smith and other sort of uh, enterprising, uh, you know, uh, neoliberal uh, economists have argued that uh, actually minimum wage is good for reasons. I, I don't exactly know the calculations that they came up with or how verifiable they are. But, um, you know, I know I, I, as a reasonable economist, um, I'm, I'm curious for your perspective on the, the effect of minimum wage or what you found particularly interesting.
2: It's it's hard to model. So the the argument for not being too afraid to raise the minimum wage is twofold one employers especially in small towns with limited labor markets they they are um they're like monopsony buyers of of unskilled labor so if they if they set a particular price people either take that price or they don't have a job so um in that sense the minimum wage like a lack of minimum wage does mean that that, that market clearing price for labor can get pretty low and like the the employers who almost always have openings are going to be big chains, national brands they're just they're better capitalized they can take advantage of temporary dislocations of the labor force, so they are they're better able to exploit that and then, since there is a cost to finding a new job if um if you you know you really want to make i don't know you really wanted to make ten dollars an hour, but you got the job at McDonald's at nine dollars an hour, well, now you have less time to interview, so you're kind of stuck at nine dollars an hour for a while you also um, you know, at that kind of compensation, you have less money for gas. It's you have to think about whether or not it's worth it to drive out to an interview or to drive out to 20 interviews or something. So um there is there is some stickiness there. The other argument, the other piece of the argument, which I think is really interesting, is that lower wage workers have an extremely high marginal propensity to spend. And they tend to spend their money, their marginal extra money, at the kinds of places that hire other low-wage workers. So if everyone at McDonald's gets a raise, it's not like they're all going to be saving their money for the next 10 years so they can afford a trip to Paris. No, they're probably going to be going to Burger King more often, going to the movies more often, um, maybe maybe shopping more at Walmart or Target, and maybe those stores need to add employees. So you do end up with an expansionary effect if, um, if part of what's holding back the economy is just a lack of demand and if there's latent demand among the lowest paid workers. So... There can be these areas, these like weird air pockets in the economy where you raise the minimum wage by X dollars per hour and the value of a minimum wage worker goes up by more than X because there's more demand from those workers. And so they, they kind of stimulate their area of the economy and make everyone better off. If, uh, But it's you have to model a lot of different cross elasticities and marginal propensity to consume and how that propensity changes over time. And you also have to model how businesses react to it. So one version of that minimum wage story is minimum wage goes up so mcdonald's workers have more money they go to burger king and they find out that now the price of a walker has gone up because burger king is paying more for labor so they are spending more at burger king but it's because it costs them more to get what they were getting before and so you end up with this kind of closed loop where not much really changed so that is, um I think, in broad strokes, the argument for a higher minimum wage, but it's it's an argument where it's really tough to figure out what number makes sense. And you know you're modeling a bunch of different dynamics that um are always shifting, so maybe maybe it's an argument for something like let's um let's automatically adjust the minimum wage by inflation plus some extra buffer, and we'll just keep doing that until something breaks, like until. Unemployment for high school graduates starts going up and relative to unemployment for everyone else, um, you could try something like that you could try local experiments, and I think that's like one of the big minimum wage papers um, did look at at um, wages in places that were on the border between would have been like New Jersey and Pennsylvania or something like. There was one state that had a higher minimum wage, a raised minimum wage, one state that didn't, and you could look at the relative effects of workers on both sides of the state line. So not a perfectly controlled experiment, but about as close as you're going to get. So you you could imagine an even more complicated policy where... You raise minimum wages in some places and you keep them steady in other places, and then you look at the relative outcomes over time and continuously adjust your minimum wage based on that and then then you just have a pretty high administrative burden for for a pretty simple policy. Um, I tend to think that the issue the issue with minimum wage is that what you're really trying to do is you're trying to distribute redistribute money to people who have lower incomes and are willing to work and that's actually that's a good cohort like you you want that cohort to have as low as possible marginal tax rate, um, uh, ideally probably a negative marginal tax rate at the very bottom of that income distribution. And then you want that tax rate to go up over time as people are in a better position to pay taxes. So I think it, it comes from a good place, but it's probably simpler and more direct to just do direct cash transfer payments. And um, I think the other an, another set of policies to think about there is that if you actually graph the effective marginal tax rate inclusive of transfers, There are all sorts of weird cliffs and valleys and distortions at the lower incomes. In fact, there are are ranges of lower incomes where your marginal tax rate is literally over 100%. You're actually, because you get kicked out of some programs and those programs have some cash value. So it's like, I forget what the range is, but it's something like if you get a raise from $20,000 to $22,000, your effective after-tax income is actually lower. Um, and so eliminating things like that, like just having having a smoother curve for tax brackets, probably does more good on average, especially because you're you're asking people who often just don't have a great education, may not speak great English, you're asking them to do fairly complicated calculations if you want them to behave economically rationally. And I think I think we would just live in a better world when they can compare the Walmart offer. Which is fifteen dollars an hour to McDonald's offer that's fourteen twenty five and say I'm going with the bigger number like that's it seems like a much better calculation to have people making rather than having them try to figure out, okay, but if I no longer qualify for school lunches, then I have to pay for that, and that actually makes me worse off, but wait, not every day, so I have to figure out how many school days there are in a year, and I also have to figure out my confidence that I'll keep this job, and so on's like i don't I don't think you um I don't think you want to be in a position where it makes more sense for someone to write a Python script to run a Monte Carlo calculation for their their 20K a year job than it would for someone who's making 200. Um, but the, the reason minimum wage came up was that New York set a minimum wage for delivery drivers, and um, they... There's there's a lot of fog of war there because the delivery companies like to quote their pay in terms of how much do you get paid when you're actively delivering. But of course, you don't spend all of your time actively delivering. So that is is the upper bound. If you had a perfectly efficient DoorDash that matched exactly 100% of labor supply to demand, then yes, that would be accurate. But we don't, so it doesn't matter. Um, But New York did. They imposed a a higher wage on those workers. And one of the responses that the delivery apps had was they actually moved tips out of the main checkout flow and turned them into something closer to an optional thing. And presumably their thinking was that, um, or their observation is tips encourage workers, workers like the tips but tips discourage customers. So you need to have enough tips to encourage workers to actually deliver if they otherwise wouldn't be making enough money for it to be worth their time. But if it's going to be worth their time, no matter what, then the tips are just going to reduce conversions. And the the tips can actually, in that scenario, actually make the workers worse off because these delivery jobs are now pretty good jobs for the people who are looking for those jobs or considering those compared to other jobs. Like the the fixed pay is pretty high um, for that category. so. really, once once that's the case, then the the socially optimal thing is maximize the number of those jobs. and the way you do that is maximize demand. The way you do that is um you you reduce tipping as a barrier to completing orders. So in the end, um systems equilibrate. like if you if you raise the minimum wage too much, you know everyone eventually acknowledges there is a minimum wage at which everyone gets replaced by a robot. We can debate exactly where that is. We can debate what the cadence is. We can, we can even debate things like, um, you know, at a higher minimum wage, one of the things that makes sense for companies to do is to actually think much harder about worker utilization. So if you set like a $25 minimum wage, maybe McDonald's says, okay, the math works if literally every minute that you are not processing a customer order, you're mopping a floor or doing, you know, tidying up or doing something else. So you actually increase the number of hours worked, but you, so you you might keep the wage kind of constant as a dollars paid versus hours spent actively working, and you just change it to this job where someone is always on and they're working nonstop, sort of like the, the Amazon warehouse um, setup. So Amazon could do that because they have a warehouse, they have this constant flow of products coming in and out, and they're sensitive to latency, but not... They're sensitive to latency on maybe like the hourly and daily scale, but not on a tighter scale than that. So they can actually try to totally optimize their workforce and get everyone, everyone working maximally hard all the time. Um, but it, it raises it raises the returns on really close supervision of workers. It means that uh, you know using. Using AI and facial recognition to actually spot someone who took a twenty-second break to check their messages on their phone, like that becomes high return at a sufficiently high minimum wage. So you, to like the equilibrium gets maintained in this kind of darker, more dystopian world. Whereas I think I think a happier equilibrium is that the people who are working at McDonald's they're not making much per hour and they're getting a monthly check that um, that helps them out and those wages fluctuate based on the supply and demand for that kind of labor.
1: I, I want to segue to um, two topics that have been a bit hot this week, um, and maybe we'll close with, with with them. So one is the sort of what's happening in universities um, right right now, and then the other was, uh, and this is much more provincial, but the EAC, um, <laughs> you know, community and, and doxing. On, on the universities, uh, what I find particularly interesting is that, uh, so first, it's, you know, we're seeing Bill Ackman basically do hostile takeovers of uh, of these universities. You know, we've we're talking since, since, since we're we're speaking at a time where only the Penn, uh, you know, uh, president has resigned, but it looks like others might might soon by the time this is released. And it seems like it's working. Like it, it, this seems like the most effective kind of donor um, activism we've ever seen. And people have been complaining about college campuses for a long time. And it's interesting that it's it's less that. Um, you know, for the free speech advocates are finally winning. And in fact, what's really happening is Jews got added to the progressive stack. You you can't speak as directly, maybe as, as I can when, when I when I say that, but it's 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 just ironic. So you have the Jonathan Heights, uh, the the classical liberals of the world saying, No, we're just, you know, this is kind of like two wrongs, don't make a right. Like we're continuing to to sort of restrict speech and and cancel people, um, but just in a different direction. Like the people who were doing the canceling before are now getting canceled um but um it's interesting that kind of the activism is 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 working it's it's rare that we've seen it and you would have thought it it can't would come from a different direction but it's interesting to see how how it happened this time
2: sometimes if a company takes some political stand that i don't like i consider just you know angrily not buying the product and then i think to myself this is this is just noise. It's not, no one is going to notice this. No one is going to try to figure out what's going on. And even if they did, would they actually notice that this was in response to a specific thing that they did? Like, maybe if I write them an angry letter, but they get angry letters from crazy people all the time if they're just a sufficiently big company with with name recognition. So that that too is pointless. And what I think was going on with the colleges was there's, there's this long period where the donors are all... We're mostly pretty annoyed with the direction things are going in, but there's no one event that makes them say "We've had enough and there was one event that actually made a bunch of them say, "Yeah, we've had enough but, um and there was there was this cascade where the um the heads of colleges are all um talking to Congress and explaining their views, and it's it's when they tried to explain why they did what they did that it just became untenable. Um, so it was one thing to say, you know, they they have some some kind of wacky beliefs, and they sort of have to have to keep their charges happy, and that maybe it's better to have a campus that where the the school periodically says some kind of crazy things, but that keeps the students from from rioting or whatever. But once once they are actually explaining that no, they they really believe this and you know genus like advocating for explicitly advocating for genocide is actually this free speech issue but they've also been pretty waffly on other more innocuous kinds of free speech at that point everyone could start getting together and you know Ackman can call his friends and say you you're also never donating to, to them again until this person gets fired right and their friend says of course so um once once it becomes salient everyone acts in concert um long term I don't know, um because I, I don't I don't know how you would set up a system where they don't drift in that direction and where they actually have to articulate some kind of principled values neutral view of free speech because ultimately you don't really have a principled values neutral view of free speech, like where we are in a country that used to belong to other people and does not anymore so we have to say that there's like there's some level of taking somebody else's land and putting your own stuff on that land that we are just l- choosing to live with that we don't necessarily think was a really good thing but was not the kind of thing we're going to undo so we're always we're always choosing what actual limits make sense like i think intellectually like you you would think that a college should be a place where you can say just about anything but it's no one has the same definition of just about and so you you either have to have to have some kind of standard where you say like we are we are explicitly committed to tolerating the kind of speech that we think is actively bad nobody should ever say but the principle of letting people say it is more important than that or you start coming up with concrete rules maybe the schools try to have a different set of rules that um that they use to differentiate themselves and that that could be interesting too but the interpretation of those rules is also going to get really tricky so you're, you're really pushing back what is this fundamental problem, that it's it's hard for people to get along. We all have varying views. And there's also this tendency for people to, to form a bubble. And within that bubble, it's very high status to believe certain things. And that means it's higher status to believe the more extreme version of that thing. And if you spend a bunch of time in that bubble, and then you try to have a conversation with a normal person about that issue, you suddenly find yourself saying wildly outrageous things all the time. Because they were they were closer to in jokes or signaling within your group for a while, or maybe there was something that started out as this sort of exaggeration that was more poking fun at how extreme the group is, but it actually turned into the group's doctrine. Um, I really like the concept of just not being in on the joke, where um, the first generation to do something, you know, they're doing their thing and they're they're exaggerating how cool it is, and the next generation doesn't realize that that was an exaggeration; they think it's the real thing. Um, I think we saw this actually with crypto where, um, people, people would talk about crypto being this thing that's going to topple all governments. And for a while it was, it was kind of a jokey thing. And then some people decided that crypto is in fact going to topple all governments and is going to just, and, and it's going to to impose some kind of anarcho-capitalist system on the world. It's totally impossible to resist. Um, I think, you know, there's, I guess it's like logically possible, but. For the most part, that was that was an exaggeration that um, some people took a little too seriously. So I'm, uh, I think my main takeaway is that I'm I'm just I'm so glad I'm not running a college right now. Um, You know, I think that that thought usually doesn't occur to me, but right now it feels like you know you're you're going to be hated by a lot of people no matter what. Um, I personally would have chosen to be hated by a different cohort of people for espousing a different set of values than that. But I can I can sort of see how this thing emerged even if I really can't relate to what they ultimately thought was the right, the right standard of conduct. But I also think um, you know, colleges, they they have good brand names. They've they 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 have name recognition. It still is viewed as this important rite of passage. Like it is how you go from being a kid in a school to being someone who can take on adult responsibilities and have an adult job. But um, it doesn't have to be that way. And it's, it is getting easier for younger people to start things outside of the college system. It's getting much easier to learn things outside of the college system. And it's getting easier to find people who want to learn the same things that you do. So um, I feel like I, so I've I've been in online reading groups, for example, and I felt like the quality of questions was much, much better than I would seen in college classes, um, and even if like the analysis, even if the average person in the reading group, myself included, is not necessarily going to, not as as capable as like the theoretical average Harvard graduate is. Um, if the Harvard people are really, really talented and they're doing the bare minimum and in your online reading group that meets on the weekends, everyone is actually really excited to dig into the readings and they have really fun and fruitful debates. Like that's actually a a better, better environment, even if the SAT score cutoff is not, not so insanely high. So I think, um, I think that's, that is, that is probably closer to the future of, of learning that you will you will find your peer group. It will be this organic peer group. It will be much more intellectually diverse than what you'd find in a typical college classroom. It won't be as selective, but you'll actually find that the, the selectivity, it it eventually selects for people who really, really felt like it was their life's mission to improve their SAT scores. And those people, they're they're really good employees. Like if you can find them, you know, you can you can give them what seems like a lot of money to them. You can give them a really impressive title. They do their thing, but um, they they don't really do their thing. They they do your thing, and you can you can get them to do it well. But yeah, they you I think the the schools are selecting against agency pretty hard right now, and the high agency people are doing other things, and those those other things are going to be the things that matter.
1: Let's uh, let's wrap on that. Burn uh, always uh, always a pleasure. And until next time. Yes, indeed. Great chatting.
0: Thanks for listening to the riff. Please go follow and subscribe. Give us five stars and check out Burns' excellent newsletter,
2: The Diff, if you haven't already.